0: Let us pray. Father, as we turn our eyes toward your word this morning, I pray that the truth of what we have just sang would resonate deep within each of our souls. And Lord, that we would truly be able to comprehend the depth of Of this great reality, the hope of the gospel that Jesus paid it all. Lord, I pray that you would speak into each of our hearts and our minds this morning. Lord, that our hearts would be ripe with a longing and a desire to hear your word and to be open and submissive to your word. And I pray, Jesus, that you would see fit to apply your word into our lives in a way that we can bring you ultimate glory in all that we say and do. And now, Lord, I pray that you would guard my lips. And that you would guard my mind even. And father, that even as we look into your word this morning, you would guard us from error and that you would help us to see the wonderful truth of your word. That we might bring you honor and glory and exaltation. That we might see the wonderful truth of the gospel and be able to celebrate it with all that we are. With everything that is within us. Let us rejoice in your goodness. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have your copy of the word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the gospel of John. Chapter 8, verses 21 through 30 will be our text this morning. If you are using the chairback Bible that's in front of you, uh, we have page you, you can turn to page eight ninety four. Um, and the text you'll find this morning, John, chapter eight, verses 21 through 30 is on page eight ninety four. The title of the message, as you see on the screen, is the universal call of the gospel. We say that because the gospel is universally given to all men. The gospel is true for every man, woman, boy and girl, every every person of God's creation. The gospel has truth to proclaim to every man and woman, every boy and girl. Every one of us. Must also heed to the call of the gospel if we are to experience the salvation that comes through Christ. So this morning, as we unpack this text, I, I want us to see first and foremost that this text speaks to the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. Christ is the only one whereby a man can be saved. There is no other way. If there was another way, then Christ died in vain. And so while the gospel universally offers salvation to all men, it's important for us to understand that it confronts the lie that all men universally are saved from destruction. So the gospel is universally offering salvation to all men, but it does not mean that salvation universally comes to all men. So I want us this morning, I want all of us who are here gathered under this dome, in this gathering, I want us to believe in Christ for salvation and then experience the nearness of God as we walk with him daily. So if you found your place in verse 21, say amen and follow along as I read. Then he said again to them. I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. The universal call of the gospel really prompts a thought within the heart of every man. Certainly within our minds as we begin to think on, on eternity and what happens when this life is over. In fact, Job chapter 14, verse 14, Job says, if a man dies, will he live again? Question that has been asked from ages past. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 the preacher says god has set eternity in the heart of man F B Meyer evangelist said god has set eternity speaking of this verse in our heart and man's infinite capacity cannot be filled or satisfied with things of time and sense eternity where will we spend eternity What happens after this life? Jesus has come into the world and he has come to proclaim the words of God himself to speak to what happens when this life ends. What is beyond tomorrow? What is beyond the short 80, maybe 90 years that we have on this earth? What happens when we close our eyes for the last time and take our last breath for the final time? And so I believe in this text we see a few things, three things that I want us to see this morning. The first of which, we see Christ confronting this idea that eternity awaits us all when he speaks to the rejection, our belief, that those who are hearing him will possess. That is, rejection, our belief in Christ, this reality that eternity awaits us all. In verses 21 through 24, we, we see this truth. In fact, before this particular passage, Jesus has been making some distinctions and and actually making some contrasts. He's been contrasting light and darkness. He has spoken to the people of Israel in the Feast of Tabernacles while they were watching water being poured out uh, at the altar. And He, he said to them, "I uh, I am the living water, or He said, Come to me, all who thirst, and I will from you, whoever drinks from me, from you will will flow rivers of living water. He's contrasted this idea of light and darkness. I am the light of the world. He who walks in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And now we see him go and contrast, or at this point, contrast life and death. And that is to say, in verse 21, he explicitly He makes the explicit statement when he says, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. These are not easy words. These are not words that are spoken in order to win the crowd or the multitudes to follow him. In fact, we see that those who reject Christ will, in fact, die in their sin. He begins with the familiar, I go away. Now, what's what's Christ speaking about when he says, I go away back in chapter seven, verses thirty three and thirty four, when they heard Jesus say this, they they thought to themselves that, uh, that that he was speaking about maybe going to the dispersion of the Greeks and and teaching, uh, teaching the Greeks. And so they said, surely he's not going to the dispersion of the Greeks, is he? Well, that's exactly what Jesus was. Referencing in the mission in which he had come to the earth for, to redeem the world. So he says, I I, I go away. Where I go, you cannot come. But here, Jesus is referring to his death. His death where he'll return to the Father. And so he says to them, you'll seek me, but you won't find me. He says, you will seek me, and where I go, you cannot come. In fact, he says, you'll seek me, and you will die in your sin. One commentator, D.A. Carson, suggests... What is meant is they will go on looking for the Messiah. They'll continue looking for the promised one of God. I'll go away and then you'll keep seeking for the promised one of God. But having rejected the truth of Jesus as Messiah, they will not find what they're looking for because they've missed God's revelation of himself in the person of Christ. And so he tells them because of this. You will die in your sin. They're suffering through death. And this suffering, it's the the due penalty of sin. What he's speaking about is the wrath of God, which is poured out on all who do not believe in Christ, in the person of Christ. And so in Romans 6, 23, the apostle Paul says it this way, he says, the wages of sin is what? Death. Wage of sin is death. I want you to notice something interesting in verse 21 about the word sin. The word sin, it's singular. It's different from verse 24, isn't it? In verse 24, look at what he says. You will die in your sins. But in verse 21, he says, you will die in your sin. Singular. What's Jesus referencing here? He's referencing that they are rejecting him. And the sin that he speaks of, which causes them condemnation, is rejection and unbelief of Christ the Messiah. That is the sin that is condemnable and will condemn them to die in their sins. This particular sin of unbelief and rejection. It's the same today. It's the same for all who hear the gospel today and choose To reject Christ. The responsibility of rejecting be. Being upon man as he rejects Christ. This passage speaks to all who reject Christ. All who reject the truth of God. He says will die in their sin. And so Jesus says. Where I am going. You cannot come. Why? Why can't they come? Why can't they go where he is going? The reason is because those who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who believe upon Christ. Those who are not caught up in the bondage of unbelief and in rejection of Christ. But those who come and truly believe in him. And so in verse 22, this leads to speculation among his hearers, among the Jews who are gathered there in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so in verse 22, it says, so the Jews are saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. Ironically, they had responded earlier to his teaching asking about the dispersion of the Greeks. It's ironic because it's Christ's mission. Christ's mission is redemption of the world. All nations. the question of his suicide shows us that at this point they are now understanding that Christ is foreshadowing or speaking about his coming death. He'll lay down his life for the redemption of the world. Later in John chapter 10 verses 15 and 18, he says, as the father knows me and I know the father and I laid down my life for the sheep. He says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So there's an. Irony, even here, and how the the misunderstanding of the world characterizes the work of Christ. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, so was Christ as he was led up the hill called Golgotha to the cross, to his place of death. What they were doing is they were twisting Jesus' words and assigning foolish talk to him. Talk such as suicide, so they could dismiss his claim. And in their minds, if they could assign this condemnable act to him, they wouldn't want to go where he was going because the Jews viewed suicide as so condemnable that forgiveness wasn't possible. But remember, Jesus says the sin that will cause them to die in their sin is that of unbelief and rejection. There is no excuse for rejecting Jesus. No matter what man can come up with, there is no excuse for rejecting Christ, God's provision. And so secondly, we see that those who believe in Jesus as God the Son will have eternal life in verse 23. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. Verse 24, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Foundationally, I want us to see two things when it comes to believing in Christ. The first, he speaks here in verse 24, saying, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. So when it comes to believing in Christ, the two foundational things I want us to see. Number one, it's this, that we must confess. It it deals with what we confess. Believing in Christ is about our confession, our confession that that this is it, that Jesus is God, the son who through the incarnation came to atone for the sins of the world through the cross. And it's through the cross that Jesus makes all who believe to share in his righteousness that we stand justified before God the Father. So it has to do with our confession. Confessing that Jesus is God's provision for salvation. That he has redeemed us. That he has forgiven us of our sin as he died on the cross. It it has to do with our confession. But believing... Deals with more than just our confession, doesn't it? It also deals with the way we live. Our living. Living one's life as a devoted follower of Christ, as a, as a disciple of Christ. In fact, this is what Jesus is speaking about in verse 23. When he makes this distinction between himself and his, and his hearers. He says of them, you are from below. You are of this world But he says of himself, I am from above. I'm not of this world. In other words, Jesus is of the kingdom of God. And if we are to go where he is going, we must become citizens of his heavenly kingdom. He says where I'm going, you cannot come. Right. And then he says there in verse. 24, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. so believing who Jesus is has to do with not only our confession verbally, but also with the way that we live every day as kingdom citizens. And so verse 24, becoming a citizen of the heavenly kingdom occurs when one believes that I am he, as Jesus has said. Now, I want us to unpack just for a moment. This understanding of I am he. It's Old Testament language. And it parallels what Drew read a few moments ago from Isaiah 43. It is this language of God speaking to the children of Israel, the nation of Israel through Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah 41, uh, 41 verse 4, he says, Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. He says, I am He. God the Father declaring in Isaiah 43 10 as Drew read, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that, listen, I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Verse 13 of 43, even from eternity. I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? And then verse 25, I want you to see it again. I, even I. I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 48, 12, he says, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I am called, I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Then a verse from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See, now that I am he, and there is no God besides me, it is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. In verse 24, when Jesus says, Therefore, I said to you, you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he. Jesus is saying that he is God, the son come down from heaven and that he and the father are one and the same those who are from below are of this worldly kingdom and will die in their sins plural. Many sins, many sins proceed from the sin of unbelief and rejection of Christ the Messiah. What are the many sins which proceed from the sin of unbelief and rejection? Let's say the many sins are the worship of idols. Selfish ambition, where self is the driving force in the center of one's life, greed, thirst for power, operating or living one's life without concern or thought of of God, as if we could live our life outside of the realm of God, the creator. Jesus says, I am he. And in making that statement, he is claiming that he is God. God. And so I want us to see that becoming heavenly citizens then has to do with believing Jesus is who he claims to be. What we say, our confession, and how we live, meaning we no longer belong to the kingdom of this world, but we belong to the kingdom of God. And if Jesus and God are one, and listen, if Jesus reveals the word of God to us, Then we ask the question of point C. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how are our lives distinctly different from citizens of the kingdom of the world? To answer that question, I want to ask us some other questions that maybe are a little bit probing. That would cause us to reflect intrinsically. Do we demonstrate a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in our lives so that when we sin, we repent and stop walking in sin? Do we demonstrate a, a submissiveness to the Lord Jesus in everything? Think about it, in our time. If Jesus were directing our time, would he direct it differently than we direct our time, right? Or what about what about our relationships? Are our relationships with others glorifying to Christ? And in our dating relationships, is it glorifying to Christ? In our in our friendships with others, is it glorifying to Christ? And in the home, and as a husband and wife, is that is that relationship glorifying to Christ? As we parent our children, is that relationship bringing glory to Christ? In every relationship, are we bringing glory to Christ? Or what about what about our entertainment? We demonstrate a, submissive to the Lord, a submissiveness to the Lord Jesus in everything in our, in our entertainment. This might be the greatest hindrance for us. If Jesus were with us during our entertainment, would he be a part of and enjoy what we enjoy? We we're talking about living as citizen, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, are we not? We're talking about reflecting the glory of Christ in all that we do. What about our finances? If Jesus were were in the control of of our checkbook, of our bank account, would, would our disbursements look any different? The reason we ask these questions is because as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, it deals with more than our profession. It deals with everyday life, with how we live, to be to be a disciple of Christ a true follower of Christ it means that we are living at a position and place of yieldedness as citizens of the heavenly kingdom we we know that we're not perfect we recognize when we sin and we bring that before the lord we confess our need for his grace as we as we fall as we sin as we stumble as we make poor decisions wrong decisions but then we are returning to him repentant seeking his forgiveness Asking for the joy of his salvation to be restored to us when we fall in sin. Another question, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how are our lives distinctly different from citizens of the kingdom of the world? Another question is, do any any of my actions exemplify continued rebellion against God and thereby reflect a heart of unbelief and rejection of faith? Because ultimately here, we see Jesus speaking to those who reject who he is when he says, I am he. And we categorize that as unbelief, rejection. They don't believe in who Jesus is as the one God who has come down to encounter man. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, and this is one for all of us, if we are. If we are engaged in sin, a life of sin and not submitting to the work and the will of God by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Are we any different than the one who says self is my God? Are we any different than the one who says I serve self rather than God? Self is upon the throne and the pedestal in my life. When we do our own thing, what we want to do without any consultation of the Heavenly Father, without seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit and decisions that we make, life-changing, life-altering decisions, even. Are we any different than those who are in the kingdom of the world? How is our how are our lives, brothers and sisters, demonstrating that we are walking as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? What is distinctly different and fragrant and aromatic about our lives i'm not i'm not trying to to beat us down here this morning so that we're so low we feel like we can't do we can't live for christ and for his glory no the point of the gospel is that we have hope he has redeemed us when we could not redeem ourselves and that when we follow him in great submission, then we find the greatest and most true sense of joy and satisfaction that we could ever find in anything. And so as we walk as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, I pray that our lives are distinctly different aromatically fragrant before God, that we, because of our relationship with Christ, we are the aroma of life to life to those who are perishing. And that we are manifesting, He is manifesting through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place, as 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 speaks. May that be our joy. Rejecting or believing in Christ is more than a confession with our mouths. It's a call to living as citizens of his heavenly kingdom, which is distinctly different from the kingdom of the world. He says to them, You are from above. I mean, you are, I am from above. You are from below. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. And so it remains that all who follow Christ. are born into the kingdom of god secondly the mission of christ is redemption of the world in verses 25 through 27 we see this we see it first in the form of an unthinkable proposition verse 25 they cannot fathom what he is saying they were saying to him who are you and jesus said to them what have i been saying to you from the beginning they struggled to comprehend jesus's identity he reminded them that his witness had been consistent about himself from the beginning. In fact, in verse 27, they didn't realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. For in verse 26, he had said, but he who sent me is true. They were unable to comprehend the identity of Christ The mission of Christ is redemption of the world. He has come to redeem. And this is an unthinkable proposition for all those who are hearing him. For most of those, rather, who are hearing him. But I would also say that maybe some here this morning, maybe those we encounter on a daily basis, are struggling similarly with the reality of Christ's identity. They're struggling to see who Christ is, or to believe who Christ is, that He is who He claims to be. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 121, "For For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness. The unthinkable proposition is that this man standing in front of them would in fact be God incarnate. God, the creator of the universe, taking upon human flesh, walking the earth, identifying with his creation, all that he might redeem his creation. Martin Luther said, The mystery of the humanity of Christ. That he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding. But the mystery of Christ is revealed in his divine proclamation. The mystery of Christ in the gospel is revealed through the Holy Spirit's granting are Him granting the Holy Spirit into the life of all who believe when He ascends to the Father. And we have in verse 26 the divine proclamation where Jesus takes the words and the teaching of God. And He communicates it to the world. The very words Christ speaks are God's words. And consequently they will be a judgment on those who are part of the kingdom of God. Of the world, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, he says. He goes on to say, He who sent me is true. He says, These things I speak to the world, the things that He has heard from the Father. We look back over John and we see that He's spoken to the woman at the well. He encountered her in the middle of the hot day, in the midst of her mundane, daily life, everyday activity. And he says to her, I'll give you living water and you'll never thirst again. And so she, she, she says, give me this living water. And he entices her to, to come and to hear that he himself is the living water. And in John 6, 35, he, he tells those who are hearing, he says, I am the bread of life at the feast of Passover. Drawing attention to himself as God who is providing life for his people. In John 7, he says, he who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John 8, I am the light of the world in verse 12. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Christ's words offer God's salvation to all who believe. Because he gives the light of life and true revelation for the entire world to see, Christ purchased redemption for the world with his life by laying down his life. Christ's mission was redemption of the world. A mission which he has given his people, the church, to carry out. To proclaim the gospel, the good news, the hope of salvation to all who are lost and dying to take the gospel and to make disciples of the nations proclaiming this wonderful, great truth. This mystery Jonathan Edwards wrote. The redeemed are dependent of God for all. All that we have wisdom, the pardon of sin, deliverance, acceptance in God's favor, grace, Holiness, true comfort and happiness, eternal life and glory. We have from God by a mediator. And this mediator is God. God not only gives us the mediator and accepts his mediation. And of his power and grace bestows the things purchased by the mediator. But he is the mediator. Yes, God is both the purchaser and the price. For Christ, who is God purchased these blessings by offering Himself as the price of our salvation. This is ultimately what Christ is pointing to in verse 28 when He says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Thirdly, this morning, I want us to see the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ is the only way Of salvation. It had to be this way. It's a popular notion today that many believe there's more than one way to earn eternal life, to gain eternal salvation. But in verse 28, Jesus speaks directly of the reality of his coming and his kingdom and gaining entrance into this kingdom of God. Jesus speaks again of his identity, as we've already covered in verse 24 and verse 28, when when he says, I am he. And so he says, when you lift up the son of man, you will know that I am he. And I just want us to take a brief moment to understand these couple of phrases. In that sentence, by lift up, Christ is referring to his crucifixion. He's referring to his crucifixion and to his exaltation and glorification. Jesus embraces the combination of, of glory and suffering in the cross when he speaks of being lifted up. In fact, Carson, Carson comments the verb carries a double force. When Christ is lifted up on the cross, he is being lifted up into his Father's presence. We think ahead in the Gospel of John in this high priestly prayer. In chapter 17, verse 5, he's praying to God on behalf of the disciples. And he says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He's speaking of being lifted up. He says, "When, when I am lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am He you we tend to lift things up that we want to put on display we lift them high we put them kind of at a focal point so that people's eyes catch them we want them to be displayed most prominently it's kind of that way even when we think about the maybe the american flag on a flagpole we we want it up above all other flags if it's gathered there around other flags right we we want it high above all the others to show that it is central that it is the most Prominent that it's the one that's on display above all the others. Or we were just reminded of this recently through the winter games and the Olympics, when we saw the uh, the 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 gold medal winner who would be lifted up on the podium above all of the others, right into that place of of prominence, into that uh, that that place of uh, exaltedness. In in a similar way, but much more profoundly. Jesus is saying when he is lifted up, that the cross is the tool of his exaltation. Later in John, he says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. In chapter 12, verse 27, he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. When Jesus says, when I am lifted up, the son of man, then you will know that I am he. He is speaking of his glorification, of his being exalted for all to see. The son of man means his incarnation. And the cross is the instrument where Christ was lifted high so that He glorified the Father through which He returned to the Father by His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension. And So He says, you will know that I am He. It was through His death on the cross that men would come to know that He was God incarnate. Jesus was able to embrace both glory and And the suffering of the cross because of God's presence. I want you to see this in verse 28 and 29. He says, I do nothing on my own initiative. But I seek these things as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus has a a profound sense of. Of God's presence and it's in direct consequence of his perfect submission to the father's will. The reason he was able to endure such suffering, because he knew that it was in accordance with the will of the father. He knew that he was walking according to the father's will, and I want to challenge us and encourage us, brothers and sisters, that we, too can and should have a profound sense of God's presence daily in our lives. And we will have it in direct proportion to our yieldedness to the Father's will. I.e., if we are not yielded to the Father's will, then we will lack a sense of the presence of God within our lives, guiding us, directing us. But if we are yielded in submission to the Father's will, seeking him, then we will not lack that presence of the Father. We will enjoy the presence of God through His Holy Spirit. Lest we think this is unattainable, because it's only something that Christ Himself was able to attain, this nearness and presence of the Father. I want to encourage you to read the work of a man by the name of Brother Lawrence. He had a book compiled after he passed away, a A book was compiled of his life. that says, The Practice of the Presence of God. That's the title, The Practice of the Presence of God. Brother Lawrence was an uneducated layman who entered the Carmelite Monastery in Paris during the 17th century, where he served as a cook. All of his days, he served as a cook. He said he felt having a proper heart about tasks made every detail of his life possess surpassing value. I began to live as if there was no one save God and me in the world. He felt that he cooked meals, ran errands, scrubbed pots, and endured the scorn of the world alongside God. One of his most famous sayings refers to his kitchen. The time of busyness does not with me differ from the time of prayer and the noise and clatter of my kitchen while several persons that are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees before the blessed sacrament. He spent years disciplining his heart and mind to yield to God's presence. As often as I could, he said, I placed myself as a worshiper before him, fixing my mind upon his holy presence, recalling his presence when I found my mind wandering from him. Beloved, oh, that you and I could say like Christ, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him, speaking of our heavenly father. That we would know the nearness of God's presence. God has intended it to be this way. As citizens of the heavenly kingdom, he desires that we would experience the great joy of life, the enjoyment that comes from walking in fellowship with him. As he spoke these things, verse thirty tells us that many came to believe in him. And so I would add this morning this that we must come to confess that Christ's exaltation on the cross is the only way of salvation. It is the only way. And so full comprehension of the salvation God provides must be grounded in the cross of Christ. Have you had a proper view of Christ's exaltation on the cross? Both his glory and his suffering that we might have eternal life through the redemption that he has provided. This morning. I want to challenge us by closing with a few questions for us to consider. Has your life up to this point been consumed with unbelief and rejection of Christ? He's God's provision of salvation for the world. Maybe this morning you need to surrender to the kingdom of God and quit walking in the kingdom of the world by confessing your sin And believing upon Christ, the one who has come to redeem us out of sin and bring us into his heavenly kingdom. Have you embraced the mission of Christ as his mission to redeem and save your soul? Beloved, have you embraced the mission of Christ as the mission that he has sent you as a believer on? And then believers in Christ, let us ask ourselves this morning, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, is my life distinctly different from those of this world? If not, what must change? And finally, am I looking to Christ's exaltation and glory as the joy of my life? Am I looking at Christ's exaltation and glory as the joy of my life? I want to close us in prayer and allow us some moments to reflect and to deal with the Lord internally as he wants to deal with us. To place our hearts submissively before the throne of Christ and to be ready and willing to yield ourselves and however he is leading us. I'm going to pray, and then you respond as the Lord leads. If you need someone to pray with you, I'll be down front willing and ready to pray with you this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, beautiful Son, thank you for our salvation. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking your word and molding our hearts. We pray, God, that you will continue to teach us. And I pray this morning for each of us that you give us the strength to respond to your leading and your prompting so that we might walk as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. For your glory and not for our own. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand where you are this morning.